You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you. Yeah, my, uh, my name is John Halsey Wood. My, Marnie is my wife. We have uh, four children. Um, only one of them had to be thrown out of the car on the way to church. It wasn't a moving car, though, was it? You know, we had to take separate cars this morning, and because uh, our schedule is a little jumbled today, and I got a call at like about 8:55 <laughs> about one child in the car and small incident, you know, on uh, Red Mountain Expressway. <laughs> um, okay, we're continuing Cameron's the series on identity, purpose, and belonging. Um, what I want to look at today, uh, and these are, these are kind of a few ideas that have been just swirling around in my head, and I'm going to try to put them together in, a, in you know, kind of a coherent way, way for us. <clears throat> uh, one of the issues, or maybe the issue, or the question is, why is identity such a problem? Why, why are we talking about it anyway? If you, you don't have to um, you know, be a Christian to be concerned about these things. Uh, you know, if you just open up the newspaper or turn on the TV, this, especially identity, is, is a major, you know, question that we have today. And I'm not sure I really remember it, you know, being so prominent, say, as a child even. Um, I'm not sure if that tells us any, anything really about changes in our culture, but it's definitely a question. Uh, and, the, and the basic problem of our identity is that we have to choose it for ourselves. We have to construct our own identity today. That's the basic problem, and I want to kind of examine that problem, and then I also want to look at a Christian answer or Christian response to that problem, especially from uh, Blaise Pascal, and that's the handout that I gave you, uh, who is is an older Christian um, thinker, theologian, kind of philosopher, spiritual writer, um, and and the question that that Pascal helps us focus on is the question of. Uh, our hearts and how are our hearts formed and he suggests that this problem of identity is a, is a kind of heart problem and he has a kind of novel and interesting uh, uh, perspective on that so <clears throat> to just preface this uh, the the bigger term or, or idea that you'll hear people talk about is um, individuation is that term familiar this is kind of coming from the counseling books and stuff. And individuation is, is just that process by which we all somehow gain a separate and unique identity from you know, the families that we grew up in. It doesn't mean that we're um, you know, entirely divorced from our families, but we do all gain this unique uh, identity, something different than, than our families. And uh, that identity uh, or that individuation process is partly identity, it's partly belonging, it's partly purpose, and defining those things for ourselves. Um, the, uh, I want to look at this, this process then of individuation under, uh, about, under kind of three different headings, really, really two parts. I want to compare individuation, or this, I want to look at a biblical story, the story of David, and read it as if it's a, you know, a story of individuation, and see how does this work for David in the Bible. And then I want to look at a, a contemporary example, uh, No Country for Old Men, which is kind of a fun, clever example, or interesting example, I hope, but we'll have some, I hope we can bring out a little bit of the contemporary relevance of that, and how that's different, how the kind of modern experience 
of individuation and identity forming, how this is different than what we will read in the Bible. And then we'll look at, at uh, Pascal's answer to that. So uh, my, three, my three headings are David's identity, Shigur's coin, and, and uh, Pascal's wager. So let's start here with, um, with David. This is, this is 1 Samuel 16. It's the first four verses. This is uh, probably a familiar story for a lot of you. And I just want to read through this and, again, kind of ask the question of what does this tell us about this whole uh, individuation process for David? The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So the Lord is talking to the prophet Samuel. Saul is the king. Saul has made numerous mistakes. And you'll remember Saul is not, he's not God's choice to be king over Israel. So um, he's, he's, a, he's a little bit doomed from the start. And the Lord comes to the prophet Samuel and, uh, and he says, um, and he gives him this task. Uh, I have rejected Saul from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord, and invite Jesse, David's father, to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. I want to point out two things about this and David's calling. Um, the first point is who, is who does the calling here. And this is why I kind of underline these, um, these phrases that I have. The Lord does the calling here, right? Very simply. And, and this is part of the story. Saul, Saul turns out to be this king that the people liked, and he was good-looking and tall and apparently strong, but he wasn't the Lord's king. And in contrast, David is the Lord's king. David is called by God. So uh, the, the very simple point is God is the one that's doing the calling. And what that tells us about David's identity forming, you know, formation, this individuation, is that it was largely in the hands of God. Um, that means that for David, his calling was a gift or a given. It, didn't, it wasn't something that he kind of, you know, it, that welled up inside of him uh, that he had to choose or construct for himself. Um, God called, and David, David, I mean, he, had, he has a will, he has uh, a choice, but his choice is just simply the choice to live into the calling that God has given him. This is very different than you know, what we and our children face today. Uh, you, I mean, y'all know how the, the, uh, the of how we talk to our children. You, you, you send them off to, to kindergarten or first grade, and, and what do you tell them? You know, you say, son, you know, if you work hard, if you study hard, if you, um, you know, obey your teachers, if you're respectful, you can be president, right? You can be an astronaut. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, or whatever it is you, you want to be, right? I mean, that's how we talk to our children nowadays. That's how we think of, that's how we think of this individuation process. Um, 
No one ever told David, you know, David, if you work hard, you know, if you study hard, if you're respectful to your elders, maybe you can be king of Israel one day, right? That even sounds absurd kind of on the face of it, doesn't it? Uh, it's just, it, we, you know, we face a kind of unique situation today. Um, I'm not sure when it started, but somewhere between us and David, there's this kind of this great uh, sociological difference <clears throat> between how, our, you know, how we live our lives and how we think of us, ourselves and our identities. Um, so let's contrast that with, uh, again, just kind of for fun, kind of for hopefully a little bit of, of, of you know, enlightenment here, with the modern predicament. Do you all know the, the story by Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men? You all familiar with this? Um, you know, I, I love Westerns. This is, like a, this is kind of like a modern Western. It's set in about 1980. Uh, the early 80s, which is, of course, when I grew up, and, um, you know, this is G.I. Joe's and uh, back and Nintendo's and stuff like that, and, um, uh, you know, so it just has a lot, I, the whole setting of it, for, for starters, is kind of, um, is, uh, I don't know, I guess it just kind of has some, uh, some pull to me, and um, you've got this, so let me, uh, let me just kind of, what I'm gonna, what I want to suggest is that this is a kind of metaphor for this process of, uh, you know, of identity forming, formation, and individuation that we face. That's uh, unique to us, or at least different than what David would have faced. Um, the, uh, uh, and it becomes a kind of crisis. You know, David has crisis, has challenges and problems in his life, but it was not a cri- his identity was not a crisis. He always knew what his identity was. He was always certain of that. Now, the question was, was he going to, as I said, kind of live into it? Was he going to be faithful to his calling? But what his calling was, was, was not really in question. Um, the, uh, this, this story by Cormac McCarthy is a, it's a, it's a Western, it's about this drug deal that has gone bad. Um, it's not a family movie, it's, um, it's, it's, it's definitely kind of an adult movie. So it's about this drug deal that's gone bad. It's about this Vietnam veteran named Llewellyn Moss. And Llewellyn finds, he's out hunting in, uh, I think it's set in, in Texas. He's, sounds like he's kind of in the Badlands somewhere in Texas. He's out hunting elk. And he, uh, he, he comes across this drug deal that's gone bad. And um, uh, against his better judgment, Llewellyn finds this satchel of money, $2 million, I think it is, and he takes the satchel of money with him, right? And, he, and, and, and there's this kind of great internal dialogue the whole time. Llewellyn is kind of trying to decide, do I take it or do I leave it? Uh, he knows, you know, that, or he doesn't know uh, what, what would happen, you know, if he, if he actually takes the money. Uh, and then it's about this sheriff, Ed Tom Bell, who is, um, he's, he's this older sheriff. He's, you know, he would be like Llewellyn's father's age, and he kind of represents this voice from a different generation. This is the, the, the old men, uh, the old man in No Country for Old Men. Um, Llewellyn takes the money. It sets off this, you know, this, this absolute storm of violence. And there's all the, there's, there's these various parties that are chasing down Llewellyn, trying to find the money. Um, and uh, uh, it's a kind of, um, uh, yeah, it, it is a kind of, um, uh, I, I, I want to say it's a, a tragedy. I guess it's a tragedy. This is not a happy ending kind of Western. Um, but the person that really gets your attention in this movie is, is this man named Anton Chigurh. And Chigurh is, is this kind of mysterious figure. He is, um, I mean, just like his name is kind of uh, a, uh, his name is, um, seems foreign. It doesn't seem like some, someone you would meet in Texas. 
Uh, he kind of comes from nowhere and at the end of the movie exits to nowhere. He's very mysterious. He is, in a way, the, the only person that really survives and rises above this whole storm of violence, but he's not a good guy. You know, you, you know the, the typical superhero movie is, the, the superhero is, gets caught in this, in this you know, uh, chaos and then rises above it and restores order. And this is the story of the chaos. Uh, the chaos destroys everything except for this one man, this hitman named uh, Anton Schur. He is a, just an absolute force of nature, but he's terrifying. And you get that, um, you get that just right from the beginning. Uh, he follows, uh, Shigur follows his own moral code. He doesn't, he is apparently hired out by someone, but he is just his own man. Um, he's kind of like a master of chaos, I think is the, maybe, the, the, maybe the term you would, you would use in, in kind of a literary study. Um, he, he, uh, he uh, yeah, he, he's almost semi-divine in a way, the way he, he can transcend this chaos. And in one, uh, in one point, at one point in the story, really early on, where you're kind of figuring out who, who Shigur is, there's this moment where Shigur walks into a, uh, this convenience store and he, uh, he, buys a, he buys a little bag of peanuts or something and he, and he comes face to face with the clerk who is this, just kind of an old man, uh, you know, a, a nice, kind of happy-go-lucky, innocent, man who wants to just make small talk with Shigur and um, you know says something like well how's the weather and uh, Shigur's response is um, is just kind of cold and icy and quickly the clerk realizes that you know something has changed <laughs> in this moment in his life and Shigur presents him with this choice the ch uh, a coin toss at which the clerk who, who, you know, five minutes before, um, you know, had no, had no care of the world, is presented basically with the decision of his own life, to choose for or against his own existence. And uh, this, is, this is just a, an, a little bit of a snippet from the, the conversation there. Have you all seen, who's seen this in the movie? For, okay, a few, okay, I, yeah, I wish I could do the, um, who is it that plays it, the, uh, um, Javier Bardem, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is my best Javier Bardem uh, <laughs> impersonation. Um, so Shigura says, says to the man, he says, he says what's, what's the most you ever saw lost in a coin toss? And at this, at this point, the, the actor who shows up for the old man, is, is, he plays two minutes in this entire movie. He's impressive because there is just absolute fear kind of coming, you know, welling up in the back of his eyes. And he, and he says, you know, he says a, a coin toss, sure, coin toss. I don't, I don't know, folks don't generally bet on a coin toss. It's usually more just like to settle something. What's the biggest you ever saw settled? I don't know. And Shigur took a 25 cent piece from his pocket, flipped it spinning into the bluish glare of the fluorescent lights overhead. He caught it slapped it on the back of his forearm, just above the bloody wrappings. Call it, he said. Call it, yes. Uh, and, and at this moment, um, the, uh, the clerk is, um, he wants to close the store, he's trying to get him out of there, and Shur forces him to make this choice. 
And he doesn't never tell him what's at stake, but you just know. And the, the viewer certainly knows, and, and the clerk is kind of just getting an idea. And, he, and, and the point is that he is forced to make a choice that he would never want to make, that none of us would ever um, you know, want to, fear, want, want to uh, you know, have to deal with. And it's a kind of evil choice. It's, it's, it's absolutely necessary, it's abs this choice is absolutely inevitable, and yet it's, um, it is, yeah, it's evil, it's kind of satanic. You have this kind of sa this satanic figure standing in front of this man, forcing him to make a choice. It seems to me <coughs> that this is a kind of metaphor for this predicament that we find ourselves in. We are forced to, to choose, even if, we, even if we don't want to against our better judgment, we are forced to choose everything in our lives. And I don't just mean, you know, of course, what we have for dinner. We are forced to choose things that, that our parents and earlier generations, and certainly someone living in ancient Israel would never choose. We have to choose our vocations, our spouse, the places we're going to live, um, you know, our communities, our uh, churches and you know even down to the point today where uh you know our children are, are faced with the choices of things like their gender and uh we and 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 even you know uh, whether we, we we parents are forced to decide whether they're going to keep their children or not and these are choices that that have to be made and yet they're not the choices are not good it's not good that we are forced uh, to make these kinds of choices. Shigur kind of represents that, I think. Um, yeah, there's this, the, the old man doesn't know who he's, he's confronted with, really, you know, but he sees you know, something like the, the, the bloody, the bandages right on Shigur's arm, and he just has a little bit of a hint um, of what he's dealing with. Um, it seems that, it seems that there can be no gifts in, for us in the world today. You know, the opposite of a choice is a gift, is something that is given. Your, your calling uh, being given to you, say, in David's case. And it's as if we want to exclude uh, all gifts, you know, all things inherited, received, um, given from someone outside of us. Um, and, and we're just not up to the choice. It's, it does become uh, kind of terrifying. Um, it becomes a kind of crisis, and this problem of I, the problem of individuation the problem of identity belonging and purpose for us and for our children is is characterized by this crisis that everything has to be chosen everything has to be to be uh, decided and we can't back out of the choice right there's no there's no saying there's no just walking out again and going back walking this back and saying I'm not going to choose that that can't happen so let me turn to uh, to a, a, another, to another Christian writer here now, uh, Pascal. Pascal is interesting to me because um, he seems to address exactly this problem that Cormac McCarthy raises in No Country for All Men. I'm not sure if I'm not sure if if Cormac McCarthy had in mind Pascal, but it's really uh, it's really um, it, it, you know it's it's kind of poignant. How, he, how well he, um, Pascal addresses the problem that, that uh, Schur poses to us. Uh, Pascal, anyone familiar with Pascal, just, or just kind of vaguely, you probably are. All you really need to know is that um, Pascal is this Christian, uh, he's a Christian mathematician and scientist. He lives in the 17th century, that's the, you know, the 1600s. This is the dawn of the, the Enlightenment, the dawn of the scientific revolution. 
Um, he, uh, his contemporary, his, his most significant contemporary would have been uh, Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes is kind of the one who, um, yeah, he, he's one of the people that kind of kicks off the, the scientific revolution. And Descartes, uh, Descartes's the one who says, uh, I believe, therefore I am. I've heard that, that phrase. Well, this is, this is kind of Descartes. Let me see if I can explain this to you, why it's significant. This is Descartes' way of, of trying to find absolute certainty in life. What Descartes is really after is he wants to know for sure, but he wants to know in his own terms. He wants to know without God. What can we know as human beings on our own, and what can we know with absolute certainty? And so his method is to, is to take uh, to start with doubt. What can I what can I doubt, and what cannot be doubted? What is indubitable? And what Descartes, the conclusion that Descartes comes to is that the only thing I can't doubt is that I'm doubting. Right? Everything else, you know, our sense perceptions. Our uh, Descartes is a mathematician like Pascal. You know, uh, our you know reason, our powers of reasoning. All these things are fallible. I mean, they may be right sometimes, but they're not right all the time. And the only thing that I can't really doubt is that I'm doubting myself. Right? And it, and and uh, probably a better a better way to put Descartes' method would have been something like I doubt, therefore I am. That's the only thing that that Descartes can be sure of. And so you end up with this kind of terrible paradox that this quest for absolute certainty, at least for Descartes, ends up in absolute doubt. And nothing can be, nothing can be taken for sure anymore. Um, that is, that is you know, kind, of, kind of where we, we have ended up, it seems to me. And Pascal is sensitive to this, this problem, that now we, we don't know what we should do, uh, we're, but we're faced with a kind of uh, this imperative that we make these momentous choices in our lives. Um, let's look at the reading then, and this is kind of what I really want to get to. See, he answers, he gives us at least uh, a, a strategy for dealing with this. Does everybody have one of these? You need any more? Got one? Okay. So, Pascal's famous for his apologetic um, kind of answer, which is, which is uh, it's called Pascal's Wager, and that's what I want to start with. Um, and this, the wager is where Pascal, he kind of, he, he, he recognizes this problem, that we have to choose, and that we're, um, and that yet we're, we're kind of incapable, or not up to the task. So let me just read to you. Uh, we're just going to read through some of this and kind of think about it. I, I want to. Um, I've got just. I want to just look through about four points. Uh, the way Pascal kind of reasons and counsels us to deal with this crisis of, of doubt and identity, and then we'll just kind of open it up for, for discussion. So let's just walk through this here. Um, yes, but you you must wager. It is not optional, uh, and this is where I see. I mean, this is this is precisely the problem that that this that this um, villain you know, poses in No Country. Um, you must wager. It is not optional. He, and he's he's talking about wagering for or against God. You have you have to choose. You must choose for God or against God. There are no other alternatives. You are embarked. Um, the uh, one of the books that I was looking at and studying for this is by a a, a theologian, a guy named and um, philosopher named Peter Kreeft. And that little word "embarked" 
is um, he makes a lot of that. It's really nice. And one in one translation I have, this would have been originally in French. It says you're already committed. But let me just read to you what Kreef says about this. I think this is is helpful here. Um, because it is tempting to say, well, no, 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 I, I'm not going to choose. I'm not. I'm going to walk away from this choice. And here's what. Here's how Kreeft, uh, Peter Kreeft, explains it. He says we are already committed. That is embarked. Embarked as on a ship. The ship is our life. The sea is time. We are moving past a port that claims to be our true home. We can choose to turn and put in at this port. That is to believe, or to refuse it that is to disbelieve, but we cannot choose to stay motionless out at sea, for we are not motionless, we are dying. That is the kind of the source of, our, uh, of, this, of this dilemma that we must choose. We are dying. We, we, um, our life is in motion, is set in motion. So what Pascal offers, and I'll read it here in just a second, but let me explain this. Um, anyone, any, any of the, uh, anyone in, um, in finance is going to appreciate this. This is basically just a kind of risk return ratio or a, a benefit cost calculation that that uh, Pascal offers here. And what, what he's saying is like, look, the reward or the benefit that we're talking about is infinite, eternal life, blessedness with God. The cost or the or what you risk is finite, though. It's your life. And if you, you know, when you set those two things against each other, the, 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 um, the choice should be obvious. If you have infinite reward and only a finite risk, then a reasonable person would always choose that infinite reward, right? If you're just, if it's this numerator and denominator, you know, as, as, the, as the numerator approaches infinity, right, then, then the benefit or the risk approaches infinity. Um, you are embarked. <clears throat> Which will you choose then? Let us see, since you must choose let us see which interests you least. You will have two things to lose, the true and the good, and two things to stake, your reason and your will, your knowledge and your happiness. And your nature has two things to shun, error and misery. Your reason is no more shocked in choosing one rather than the other, since you must choose of necessity. This, is, this one point is settled, settled, but your happiness let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two choices. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then, without hesitation, that he is, that is, that, that God exists. That is very fine. Yes, I must wager, but I may perhaps wager too much. Let us see. Since there is an equal risk of gain and loss, if you only had to gain two lives instead of one, you might still wager. But if there were three lives to gain, you would have to play, since you are under necessity of playing, and you would be imprudent when you are forced to play, not to chance your life to gain three at a game, where there is an equal risk of loss and gain. But there is an eternity of life and happiness. Okay, he's kind of, a, I think his language is a little bit kind of confusing here, but you, you can kind of get the point, I, I think. He's saying that the rational choice here, and this is what the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution was after, like say with, with someone like uh, Descartes, and what we still, we still feel the weight of today is we want absolute reasonable certainty for these choices that we make. Uh, and, and this is Pascal's answer. He says, well, just think of it like a wager. What would you bet? You know, uh, 
you know, what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? That's exactly what Pascal is saying. There's only one problem with this, right? Uh, people that talk about Pascal's wager, they, they kind of stop right about here. And they, you know, people will explore the, you know, the nuances and if his logic is really right. But Pascal, Pascal doesn't stop right there. And I think that's important. Uh, and this is, this is perhaps the most important thing of what Pascal wants to say and how he wants to address this situation. Um, the, problem is, the problem is this, is that uh, in such a momentous choice, um, neither God and I don't think we are going to be satisfied with a kind of wager. Right? I mean, if your wife or your spouse, your, hu your, your husband or your wife ask you, well, why do you love me? then a satisfactory answer is not going to be, well, you know, I kind of weighed up the benefits, I weighed up the cost, and it just seemed reasonable, it seemed rational, you know, that I should love you and stay married to you. Uh, that's, that's not going to be a satisfactory answer, right? And, that's, um, and, and Pascal realizes that, and he realizes that very quick. He, uh, <clears throat> it's not going to be satisfactory to God. When Christ says, you know, who do you say that I am? The answer is not, well, you know, it's possible you're, you're this, and it's possible you're that. And, you know, as I kind of, you know, reasoned this out, it seems like the most, you know, the benefit-cost uh, calculation leads to this. That's not, that's not the answer that God or Christ is looking for. Um, skip down to, to, I have point two there, and this is on the second page. So this is, this is, this is Pascal, he's kind of addressing this problem, and this is, you know, this is his interlocutor, this is the person he's talking to. <clears throat> and here's what he says, this is, this is the failure, I, I, you know, I would say, of reason and apologetics. I confess, I admit it. In other words, yeah, you're right, Pascal. The wager, this, is, this argument holds. This, is, this logic's pretty tight. But still, there is no means of seeing the card. Uh, is there no means of seeing the faces of the cards? Yes, scripture and all the rest. Yes, but I have my hands tied and my mouth closed. I am forced to wager and I am not free. I am not released and am so made that I cannot believe. What then would you have me do? In other words, in spite of in spite of reason, uh, our belief just doesn't follow sometimes. Um, we can't simply, you know, reason our way into belief, into uh, Christian faith. And reason, reason at this point fails us. Um, Pascal responds then, true, but at least learn your inability to believe. Since reason brings you to this, and yet you cannot believe. Endeavor then to convince yourself, not by increase of proofs of God, but by the abatement of your passions. The real problem of belief, the, this crisis of identity, this crisis of individuation that we all face is not going to be solved by a better reasoning. Uh, the real problem, as Pascal says, is our passions or our desires. Uh, this, is, this is something that kind of transcends our reason. Um, I was trying to think of a kind of a, you know, if I wanted to uh, give it a kind of theological or philosophical kind of sounding term, you know, you might say that uh, our desire is a kind of pre, you know, volitional 
disposition that before, before we will, we are already disposed or oriented or directed a certain way. And that is, that's, that is our love, our desires and our passions are, are all kind of wrapped up in that disposition. Uh, and that is often what you know, determines our choice more even than our reason. And that's what, that's what Pascal is counseling. Basically, be, take, take, pay attention, um, take time to consider your passions. And what, uh, what you must do, he says, the abatement of your passions. If you can't believe, uh, then you don't love. If you can't believe, then clearly you don't desire God. And consider what it will take then to, as he says, you know, abate your, your passions. This is the problem of desire. Uh, and at root, this problem of identity uh, this crisis of identity, what I'm suggesting is at least part of it, maybe the, maybe the biggest part is a problem of desire and our passions within us. Um, and then that leads us to a, a kind of then the next question, well, how can I change that, right? How, how are my desires shaped? And for us, as we're thinking about this, how, what about the desires of our children? Where do they come from? And um, what, can be, what can be done about those things? And uh, this is Pascal's answer here. He says, uh, you would like to attain faith, and you do not know the way. Right? This is the man in the Bible that talks to Jesus and who says, look, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? That's, that's who we're talking about here. You would like to attain faith, and you do not know the way. You would like to cure yourself of unbelief and ask the remedy for it. Learn of those who have been bound like you and who now stake all their possessions. These are the people who know the way which you would follow and are cured of an ill which you, ha- which you would be cured. Follow the way which they began by acting as if they believed, taking the holy water, having masses said, etc. And even this will naturally make you believe and deaden your passions. Um, Pascal, so here's Pascal. I think this is really the root of Pascal's advice and counsel to us then in this whole predicament. You want to believe, but you can't. Um, it is because of our passions, our desires are, are misguided in some way. Uh, we don't love as we ought. And what does he say? Well, if you want to, if you want to, uh, to love as you ought, if you, to form, for your desires to be formed properly, basically he says, act, act as a Christian. Go to church. Um, the things that God has given us to form our hearts are his word, sacraments, and prayer. Um, Mass, of course, for Pascal is church. Um, this is, you know, talking in, uh, in Catholic terms here, the holy water and, the, and uh, having masses said. But what's overall interesting to me is this idea that our hearts can be formed by our habits. That our act, that we can, that our actions form us, and what we do with our bodies has an effect on our souls and our desires, and that sometimes it is enough to act as if um, we are, you know, one one way or another, and that we so become that way. The 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 kind of the way I explain it to my children sometimes. My children think that everything is just a matter of like starting in your heart and and then expressing it outward, right? That's kind of how we think typically today, uh, but that's not that's not always true. My children think, well, I didn't do you know, I wasn't a good football player because I didn't you know I didn't have a good practice, right? And and my response is, well, there's there's no football gene, um, you know, there's no Tom Brady gene. 
There's, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people that could, that could have been Tom Brady. What made Tom Brady a football player was by practicing, you know, by living it out, right? Um, uh, a lot of our lives are is like our, a lot of, of our lives uh, is like that. We become what we are by doing one thing or the other. We become good by doing good, and we become bad by doing bad. What we believe is unique about the word, sacraments, and prayer is that those are the means of grace that God has attached his Holy Spirit to. That distinguishes um, these practices, these Christian habits, from every other habit or practice or action you know, that we can do in life. That, there is, um, that God's Holy Spirit is working through these things and that he's thereby forming our hearts and the hearts of our children. Um, so what do we do in conclusion? Right. <laughs> I really like this sign. <laughs> you know, I, um, it, it's kind of fun to talk about, and the children always, every time we drive down I-65, you know, we all, it always is a conversation piece. Um, it can be off-putting, I get it, um, but um, I think there's a kind of profound and, and deep truth here as well. And that is just simply what we're saying is that our habit, that our hearts are formed by our habits. And that the, in this whole process that we're wrestling with, um, you know, and trying to guide our children and their choices and uh, throughout life, that the most important thing that we can do is simply spend time with God, his word, and his people. And that's, I mean, that's what going to church is, right? Um, and uh, our lives and our children, children's lives really de- depend on that. Um, so that's, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. We can have, um, I don't know if you have any questions or comments about that. I've kind of thrown out a lot there in just a few minutes. Um, so yeah, we just kind of open it up for any questions. Take that, yeah. <laughs> this one is even on, you know, Google Images. <laughs> what happened to the store clerk? So in the movie, the, the store clerk, uh, he chooses, I can't remember, he chooses heads or tails, and, and it, he chooses right, and Sugar walks away. And then later in the movie, there's another figure that chooses poorly. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's a great scene, and Javier Bardem and the store clerk. I mean, it's, you're talking, it's like a two-minute scene, but it is it's really one of the great, for me, like one of the great kind of cowboy western, you know, uh, it's, uh, scenes. Um, yeah. Shigeru is terrifying. He's, he's a total weirdo, too, in the movie. He's, I mean, they cast him perfectly. He's exotic. He's, it doesn't look like he's from Texas. He's, he wears these strange kind of clothes, um, and, you know, he... Uh, he presents, yeah, he, he's, he's kind of like fate embodied, and fate is that, that this man would choose, um, and choose, you know, something that he didn't want to have to choose. Um, it's a great metaphor for that. <clears throat> okay, well, um, yeah, I'll leave you with your, with your Pascal. Uh, it's worth thinking about, I think. Uh, I enjoyed reading through this uh, and kind of meditating on it. We'll, um, we'll pray uh, anything. Well, I'll just close in prayer. All right. So our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the means of grace, for your church, the communion of saints. We thank you for your spirit working through 
all of these means for us, for our sakes and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.